So just speaking it into existence, I think the concept is kind of silly, but it's real in the sense that if you speak it, other people will hear it. Other people are listening and they can help you actualize what you want. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Data Scientist Show. Today we have Ken Ji. Ken is the head of data science of Scouts Consulting Group, working on sports analytics. He's also a YouTube creator, talking about data science and personal growth. I really enjoy his channel, and I am one of his 183,000 followers, and I highly recommend you to check it out. Today, we'll talk about his career journey, sports analytics, how to build a brand for a data scientist's career, and personal growth. Uh, if you enjoy the show, subscribe to the channel and give me a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, and whatever channel you're listening on. And uh, Ken currently is based in Hawaii, so uh, we are recording this in Oahu. Welcome to the show, Ken. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me on. Let's start with your career journey. I know you have degrees in marketing, econ, so how did you get into data science? So I kind of I got into data science almost by accident. So my whole life, I was fascinated with athletics. So I played baseball, I played golf at at fairly competitive levels. And when I was in college, honestly, all I wanted to do was play sports. I didn't really care about school. I didn't care about any of those things. So I was playing golf in college. And I, at the same time, took an economics course. And economics kind of opened me to how data could be used to understand people right? To understand what's going on in the world, to understand trends. And I realized that I could apply some of those concepts to my golf game to actually improve. And that became a competitive advantage for me. I was able to see different areas of my game where I could improve more. So mm-hmm. in, like marginal return on investment yeah. like t- of, on, of time spent. And that pivoted me into becoming fascinated with the domain of analytics. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any idea what data science was. I didn't have any understanding of that. Yeah. I just wanted to get better at golf. And so as I kept progressing after college, I tried to play professionally a little bit. And another thing I learned from economics was opportunity cost. Mm. So I realized that by playing golf full time and trying to make it, the career opportunities for me, if I were to do that for say five years, would not be optimal. They wouldn't be what I would really like to be doing. Yeah. So I went down that path and then I realized that, hey, I want to do other things. I really like this analytics thing. Let's learn more about that. So I went back to school and I started studying to basically break into the management consulting field. So I went and I did my master's in global commerce at the University of Virginia. And while I was there and a little bit before that, I'd started getting a little bit more into technical skills. Mm. So I, I at the, after I was trying to understand my own data and performance Uh, like golf performance, I then wanted to understand how professionals did. So I started looking at sports betting, playing daily fantasy sports. And then I realized that, wow, I need more technical skills to evaluate all of this data. So I I went back to school and picked up some of those. Like I did some SQL, I did some other things. And I eventually transitioned into management consulting. I did not like it very much as a (laughs) consultant. It was a lot of hours. Yeah. And the work just wasn't that stimulating, especially at the entry level. And I decided that with all the analytics I was doing in sports, I needed more pure technical skills. So I went back and eventually did my master's in computer science. Yeah. And from there, you know, I interned at uh, at a couple of companies Mm -hmm. as a data scientist. I eventually started 
while I was in grad school working at the company that I work at now, yeah. doing the sports analytics consulting. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a winding road, but sports have always been the center. Yeah. And I was just trying to understand sports better. I found that analytics were the way to do that. And then I looked back and I said, wow, I have a mm-hmm. data science skill set once I figured out what data yeah. science was. Oh, that's really cool. Thanks for sharing your journey. I know you have a YouTube video talking about what would you do if you were able to go back to school and study data science um, all over again. And you did update this year. So um, what, for our audience who haven't seen that video, can you give us a high-level overview of um, what is your advice for people who want to either get into data science or refresh their knowledge? Yeah, so... The reason I started making YouTube videos in the first place is I realized that there were there was no one who could tell me how to break into the field from consulting. Yeah. I, I didn't see any blogs out there. I didn't see any information out there. So I started making content that I wish I had when I was going through this process. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm constantly asked and one of the biggest questions I had was, how do, how do you learn this field? Is there a framework? What do you do? And so... I almost always recommend to people get a basic level of Python programming and then start doing projects, get your mm. hands dirty as quickly as possible. That was my older advice. Yeah. Now I think I have a little bit better informed advice. I, I still recommend very early in your career or in your process of learning, getting familiar with a programming language. Mm-hmm. To me, a programming language gives you the building blocks to do anything. So, you know, you, math is obviously very important, right? But in order to apply math, it really helps to have programming first yeah. because then you have the building blocks to be able to apply a lot of the mathematical yeah. concepts. Even before that, though, I recommend creating a framework for learning. So look, doing a meta-analysis of what is data science, mm-hmm. what are the components, what are the types of questions you're answering, what type of tools are you using, yeah. a lot of the different you know, parts of the field and what's also interesting to you. Mm-hmm. And then that creates a path for you to, to go down the road of learning programming first and then eventually doing projects and building out your skill set. Yeah. Another thing that I revised this year is, again, I would tell people to just jump into projects right away. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a step before that, if you're intimidated by that, that can be really helpful. And that is looking at other people's code on Kaggle or GitHub. Mm. There's so many projects out there that people have done. You can see like Kaggle Grandmasters, brilliant data scientists, the exact code they've written and the exact results that they get. And it doesn't hurt to just go through those and understand those. And if you, you know, go through those line by line, right? Yeah. You run the code in cells, you tinker a little bit, you change the parameters, you see what this does and what that does. That takes the pressure off of you from doing a whole project, Mm -hmm. but you still get the benefit of going through the process with someone and it's like someone's holding your hand through it. Yeah. uh, Which I really recommend. That's something I've done a lot more of this year. Mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing that. I also agree with you that it's very important to learn from doing projects, especially, um, doing something that you're passionate about. In your case, it's sports. And for folks who don't know where to start, do you have any advice? Yeah, I always recommend people starting on Kaggle. That to me is one of the most relevant things. Mm -hmm. But people think a project has to be something really crazy. It has to be end-to-end where you scrape the data, you build like a production model, you put it on the cloud or, you know, on Heroku or something, make a website. That's not what a project has to be. A project can be as simple as writing hello world, print hello world, right? Mm-hmm. That to me is you're implementing something and you're seeing what it does. A very simple project that I think a lot of people should do is just looking at your financial data and looking how much money you're spending, yeah. building some graphs, understanding your own your own habits, right? I mean, what what is 
data is supposed to be practical for it's for creating value and that's an easy way to create value for your long-term financial health right yeah and so i think deconstructing what a project is you know you're analyzing data you're hoping to find some sort of insight that can be a really powerful way to reframe what a project is and make it not intimidating yeah thanks for sharing that um i think kago is definitely a great way to learn um so what do you see the difference between Kaggle projects and the real world data science? So I think a lot of people say that, you know, Kaggle and real world projects are very different. Mm -hmm. Over time, I've come to think that they're a lot more similar than people give them credit for. Yeah. A lot of the time on Kaggle, you're using real data sets mm -hmm. from real companies. They are framing the problem a little yeah. bit better, but the data is real and maybe mm -hmm. they clean it up for you a little bit more. But in 2022, a lot of companies have data engineers that are trying to improve the quality of the data consistently, yeah. right? And in a future of data science, I don't see why at some of the largest companies, the Kaggle data and the actual data that you're getting at mm. work aren't super differentiated. Yeah. So from the onset, I would say that, okay, the data quality is probably a little bit better on Kaggle mm. most of the time, but, and you don't have to create an end product of your model, mm -hmm. right? So you have to pre create a, a product and the product is probably going to be a little bit overfit, yeah. right? Because there's a very specific training set, mm -hmm. uh, the validation set or like the submission set that mm -hmm. you're producing. In theory, you're kind of overfitting on that too, if yeah. you're submitting a ton of, a ton of times. Mm -hmm. So to me, there's, um, you know, there's, they're converging pretty quickly. Yeah. And I think that that's good for the field, mm -hmm. right? I mean, to have a platform where you can actually analyze data that's as close to a production environment as possible makes me really happy. Yeah. Um, so actually, I previously wrote a post about Kaggle is different from real data science work, and there's something you are aware of. So it's very interesting to hear your perspective. So I agree. I think to learn, if we start with thinking about, oh, do I write this scraper to collect my own data or thinking about productioning the model, that might be a little bit intimidating, right? So Kaggle provide this environment where you don't have to worry about that too much. Just think about, oh, how do you solve this uh, data science problem. So it's a great way to start. And one thing, it's not, um, I don't think it's uh, like, something Kaggle is missing. It's just, if you think about the entire data science workflow, there are other type of skills that we need to uh, develop. Um, but yeah, so uh, Kaggle- not, You're not using SQL on Kaggle, right? Right, and yeah. Like, I don't know many data scientists that don't use SQL every day. Yeah. So that's absolutely, you're 100% right. Like mm -hmm. there are parts of the process. I also saw recently um, on the Stack Overflow development survey, a developer survey, data engineers are now on average making more than data scientists, yeah. which is pretty interesting. Yeah. And Kaggle is not a platform, in my opinion, for picking up data engineering mm -hmm. skills, right? Those are really important, increasingly important right now, especially in like mid-sized companies, not necessarily like the, the giant tech companies. Mm -hmm. But to me, that's like a little interesting thing. Maybe there's room in the market for someone to build a product that is really catered to data engineering challenges or, right. or maximizing that skill set. Yeah. Um, another thing I think uh, we 
cannot learn from Kaggle, but very important is to translate the business problem into the data science problem. How do you communicate with stakeholders, which uh, I want to talk more with you about that later. Um, previously, you mentioned that you did some project analyzing your personal data. Can you share some of the project you did? I've done a couple. So a while ago, I actually analyzed my YouTube data. Mm. This is when I had, I think, you know, a thousand, two thousand subscribers yeah. in the early days. And to me, that was interesting to see what days were best for posting videos, mm -hmm. what type of topics were having the most success. And more recently, actually today, I just started scraping, or not scraping, I just downloaded all of my data from like the lifetime of, of my channel. Yeah. It was kind of a pain in the butt. Google didn't make <laughs> it super easy. But I'm going to, instead of analyzing myself, mm. I'm going to open that up to my community to analyze. Ah. So something I learned as a data scientist right. or as an entrepreneur, maybe not as a data right. scientist, is to just outsource everything. So hopefully I'll get some really good insights from everyone out there yeah. that'll, that'll help me to make you know better informed mm -hmm. decisions about my channel. Yeah. I also, I'm very passionate about my health data. So I wear this uh, so aura ring. It tracks my sleep and my, my movement, my heart rate variability, my body temperature, those types of things. And um, I was also very recently tracking my blood sugar. I'm not a diabetic, but yeah. I wanted to see what foods impacted my mood and my energy. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting book called The Personalized Diet mm -hmm. out of the Wiesman Institute. And in, I think it's in Israel and talks about how your unique gut microbiome is has a lot of responsibility for how you react to foods. So like mm -hmm. you might be able to eat uh, sourdough bread and feel perfectly fine. Yeah. But I might eat it and I might feel sluggish. I might feel mm -hmm. tired. And a lot of that has to do with how my, your, our unique microbiomes impact the, like the sugar output in the food. Mm -hmm. And so to me, I wanted to, to do a test on myself to study that. They also have a really cool program where they've built pretty cool machine learning models that can evaluate a sample of your gut microbiome and tell you what foods you might be sensitive to. Oh, wow. So there's like a tie-in to the actual data science yeah, associated yeah. with them Yeah, that's really cool. I always find it's really interesting when you can actually draw actionable insights uh, from the data to your own life, change your own behavior. Um, so for those type of projects, how do you construct the project. So for example, you have your health data, uh, you have your sleep data. What is the first step you take to analyze them? Yeah. So I, 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 the most basic project I've ever done was collecting my golf data and mm. improving that. That's really the first project yeah. I've ever done. And I made a lot of mistakes on that project, mm -hmm. right? But to me, just thinking about the problem you want to solve is the first thing that is really important, right? So once you've clearly defined what the problem is, like my problem back then was, hey, how do I become a better golfer? right? Then you start thinking about what data you want to collect, mm. right? And so you start going down the rabbit hole, you start collecting data, and then inevitably you realize, oh, I want more data, like after yeah. I've actually learned about the scenario. So I usually with these processes will do a first step of where I collect some data and evaluate it. And then after I have a little bit more of an informed opinion, I try and collect more data and, and eff effectively redo mm. some of the analysis. I think that you have to be careful of scope creep and things like that. But I found it really rewarding to have that second check because a lot of the times you, you get so far down, you're like, man, I wish I had that data, but it's too late now. Yeah. And so doing that earlier allows me to, to kind of sneak in some of that, that, that I usually, or some other people might've missed. Mm. Uh, after that, it's really about exploration. I mean, 
most of these projects, if you're using your own data, right, you're still going to get value out of it, even if it's not what the intended target was. Yeah. Right. And so I like to explore. I like to build some visuals. Honestly, I just make a lot of pivot tables and mm-hmm. see what things are related. Yeah. Um, and then you actually try to solve the problem that that you've put out to to do. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of flexibility in that. The there isn't one answer. It's not just throwing a bunch of models at the problem. Honestly, mm-hmm. most of the analysis you're going to be doing with your own data at first, or even the whole project, is going to be exploratory. Yeah. Or, uh, like just basic EDA. So I just try to have fun with it, use some different tools and use it as an opportunity to experiment, mm-hmm. right? With very basic data, you know, what are the things that you can change? Like, okay, you can adjust the data, the types of graphs you use, but you can also use different tools that maybe you haven't used before. It's a great learning ground for that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That's really cool. And you mentioned you made some mistakes when you did your golf data analysis. Could you share? Yeah. I mean, the biggest one was the collection and the inconsistency there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would mark variables differently so for example i would use feet and then i would use yards and Mm. then uh you know it's pretty easy to go back and forth and fix those but when you're a beginner doing it in excel in excel it's kind of a pain in the butt right Mm -hmm. and then you also have like time frames and you're looking at um when i was starting out i didn't know how to evaluate the time series data what Mm. did that what did that mean to me right so looking at the data types and uh, further on when i was actually started building models it was understanding the assumptions of different models, mm-hmm. right? So a very basic thing is like with regression, understanding that multicollinearity is a factor. And right, so what does that mean? It means that, okay, uh, if I have too many variables that are too related, my model is going to produce some pretty weird results, Yeah. right? And, you know, pretty easily fixed with using a different type of model or some regular- regularization mm-hmm. or whatever it is. But when you're starting out, you don't realize that and you kind of have to learn it the hard way. Yeah. Well, that's a good good mistake. Like you learn it after you, you, you don't make the mistake again. Yeah. After you make it once pretty bad. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for sharing. And how did those uh, projects you did on your own data help you uh, with your career in the sports athletics domain? Yeah. So, I mean, the fact that I had a bunch of projects related to sports in general mm-hmm. helped me tremendously with, you know, breaking into the role or being able to explain my work. So the the origin of our company is that my friend um, who I grew up playing golf with and our other friend, he hatched this idea that the U.S. Ryder Cup team, which is so the Ryder Cup is an event where the 12 best Americans play the 12 best Europeans every other year in a, in a, in a match, right? And the U.S. on paper, like with the world rankings, have consistently been better than the Europeans. But we've but at that point, we'd lost nine of the last 11 Ryder Cups, right? So there's a business case. Like, why are we supposedly better but keep losing? And so they, he pitched uh, an analytic solution to that and say, hey, we can research this. We can understand and help revitalize the U.S. process. And so we ended up winning that contract. But he came to me as one of the analytics people because he knew I'd done all these other projects related to sports. Yeah. Right? So it's very natural to make that segue. And he's, you know, it's probably the only person he knew that was doing these projects and was sharing about yeah. them. In terms of landing internships and those types of things, it's it's the same thing. I uh, I did a uh, project in grad school. It's the, my first YouTube video ever. I just put it on YouTube, didn't think about it. Mm-hmm. And it was it was um, trying to predict the price of different cryptocurrencies using recurrent recurrent neural nets with different types of nodes like LSTM, GRU, right? Yeah. And 
I, you know, I don't think about it. It's been three months. I look back and I gain some subscribers and I, I, you know, the videos watched a thousand times or something mm-hmm. like that. And I was like, Oh my goodness. Like there's an audience for that. Yeah. But even crazier is that every interview that I went into, there was a project on my resume. Mm. They like, I would say 60% of them had seen the video and they asked me about it. Oh, wow. I'm like, Oh, I mean, but that's a cool skill to, to advertise is yeah. that not, not only can you do the analysis, but you can convey it in a spoken word format mm-hmm. with slides and whatever it is. And I think that that was instrumental in a lot of the opportunities that I got right out of grad school or like while I was in grad school mm-hmm. is that I showed something that a lot of people didn't, right? I showed my verbal ability, not just my technical ability. And, you know, if everyone, you know, if anyone is close in technical ability, you you know, if all of them are grouped really in, in this type pattern, the person with it, differentiation and skill is always going to trump yeah so i was like oh that's that's a nice way for him to make a difference Mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean they all fed into to my work like i don't think i would be anywhere like youtube i look at as like a project right it's a portfolio it's a bunch Mm -hmm. of videos and it's created a brand for myself and created a lot of opportunities so Mm -hmm. i'm like the biggest pro project whatever type of project if it's a podcast whatever it is like absolutely go do it Mm -hmm. yeah and uh so you mentioned the verbal ability is very important uh, how did you develop that skill? So that's another pretty interesting thing. So right around the time when I uploaded my first video, I also had a interview. And the interview style was there's a question prompt on the screen and I just had to talk into the camera. Mm-hmm. And I watched back the recording before I submitted it and I was like, no one would ever hire me. Like that was so bad. It was so awkward. I was super stiff. I I just didn't know how to talk into a camera. And I was like, well, you know, I probably sound like that in normal interviews too. I'm not paying attention. Like, I don't know what my mannerisms are. So I realized that a great way to practice that is to talk into a camera and record it. And I also realized that, hey, while I'm doing this, I might as well upload the videos. I might as well hold myself accountable in that way. And an early part of a lot of my YouTube videos, some of the motivation was, hey, this is an endeavor to improve my interpersonal skills, my mm-hmm. ability to talk in this forum. Yeah. And hopefully it worked reasonably well. <laughs> and then further on, I started interviewing people for the channel. Mm-hmm. And I really liked doing that. But when I would watch those back, and you might see a, a couple of them here, I had filler words, I'd say like and um and those yeah. types of things a lot. And I realized that, hey, this is a great way to improve my live interpersonal skills so before it was recorded it was presentation now i'm talking in a a spontaneous setting right yeah something else i learned which is very interesting Mm -hmm. from studying that and using data is that in the morning i have significantly less ums and fumbles and likes (laughs) than i do in than i do in the afternoon and it's like mental fatigue because i'm like working all day yeah so i apologize you got me in the afternoon so (laughs) you might you might have some of those no worries. Oh, that's super interesting. Um, well, I'm not saying a lot of um, either, I guess. So thanks for sharing uh, that. I think it's also very important. Now, I uh, want to dive into sports analytics. So I think that's very exciting area. And we have n- never had a guest talking about sports analytics before. So folks who are not familiar with the industry, can you tell us what are type of problem generally people are working on? Yeah, so there's a bunch of different types of problems within sports analytics. So the one you're probably most familiar with is audience engagement, right? And that's largely related to creating data visualizations or using data in a way that helps tell the story of the sporting event. 
So you might see an infographic come on the screen during a football game or a baseball game with the percent probability that someone will catch a ball, right? And that, the idea is that that's going to make the game more fun and more, more interesting. And with the rise of fantasy sports and sports betting, that's really compelling to people as well because that helps them to, quote-unquote, make better decisions when they're wagering on the game or, mm-hmm. or when there's something at stake. There's also the type of um, analytics that I do or actually, I, I should continue on the other path of, of sports gambling. So there's a huge industry associated with setting lines for sports books or the analytics around the actual gambling around sports. Um, th- that's still growing. So sports gambling became federally legal in the U.S. a couple of years ago. And so that industry is really booming and continuing to grow. A type of work that I do is related to performance analytics. Mm. So we're trying to help the teams and the athletes improve their performance. So we want them to, we want to help them understand how to make better decisions when they're playing sports Mm -hmm. to lead to better outcomes. Usually that means more wins, more money earned, something along those lines. Those are the metrics we we care about. And it's interesting not necessarily having revenue as a bottom line. I mean, revenue in some ways, you know, I, I guess I did say revenue was was one of the things we try to improve, but I was thinking of that in a, in a golf sense. We w- we want them to shoot lower scores, and in golf, when you shoot lower scores, you make more money. Mm-hmm. But in other sports, when you win, you don't always make more money, right? Like it, it's a, it's a kind of weird backward system. Like a sports team can can win but make less money than another sports team because of advertising dollars and spend and and fandom and those types of things. Yeah. So it, it's it's interesting to see how this is all. It fits into the incentive system of, of broader sports. Mm-hmm. So now when you work with golfers, I think you have very uh, unique advantage because you used to play golf and you can communicate the data in a way that they're interested in, they care about. So can you share, um, like for you to communicate your data science finding with athletes, what is your approach? Yeah, so I think something really important to realize is that like athletes are really smart. They're geniuses in their sports, yeah. right? But they're not trained in data science. They're not trained as business analysts. Mm-hmm. You know, they might not have seen a, a bar graph or something like that, right? And that's not a knock on them. It's just that that is an area of specialization. And so thinking about how to communicate information in more reductionist ways, I think is a really powerful thing. Like the idea is that, hey, we're making this recommendation. We want you under- to understand it and we want you to implement it. It doesn't have to be in a fancy, beautiful bar chart. It doesn't have to be in in a in like a crazy, like information rich dashboard. Mm-hmm. It can just be in bullet points sometimes, right? Like they just have to understand it, and they have to understand why. We also have to think about the models we use and how we describe them, because nobody, especially athletes, they don't trust a black box, right? They need to understand at least some basic level of what's going on with the decisions you made. Mm -hmm. So I've had to do a lot of thinking about how do I explain a complex algorithm? How do I explain a Monte Carlo simulation to someone who hasn't necessarily had relevant experiences to understand that? Mm -hmm. So to me, a lot of it is asking athletes or or managers or coaches or or whoever it is, like, how do you receive information best? Do you want me to talk it through Mm. to you? Do you want me to give you a graph? Do you want me to, you know, doodle it out? Whatever it is, right? And I think for me and for anyone, that's a very compelling way to do things. Also, something we found is, you know, it's not fun, it's not sexy, but if there's a visualization that they really understand, if it works, we just reuse it again with different data, right? Like they understand what that is. It works really well. Don't, if it ain't 
you know, broke, don't fix it. Mm -hmm. And again, that's not like mainstream. It's not sexy. It's not that cool, but it is a very effective way to convey information. And we know that it works. It's tried and true. We also experiment, obviously. And if something works better, but a lot of the times with traditional athletes, they just want it in one way. Like I get it this way. Let's keep it that way. Yeah. I like that. I think it's very important to ask your audience communication style and then use their language uh, when you talk to them. And also, if you find something that works, you can double down to keep using that, right? It doesn't have to be uh, fancy or complex. So sometimes we want to impress people with our skills, but actually (laughs) confuses people. Well, well, that's one of the things is that, you know, me having a background in golf, it allows me to speak a lot more of the same lexicon as them, Mm. like the idioms, the, the, kind of subtle nature of, of golf and, and the language, the lingo that we use is it's the same, like we're on the same page about that. And so I can mix that into the, to the data jargon and it seems less intimidating to them because I'm coming from their perspective or with some like weird semantics that they understand, but the data, the normal general data person wouldn't understand. So it's sort of a unique way to build rapport. Like, you know, if you're working at a large company and you have company specific lingo that you use, yeah. if you're mixing that into whatever you're working on, it kind of makes everyone feel like, hey, we're on the same team. We, yeah. we get this. We're working towards it. And I, I think that that's pretty, pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And um, since you mentioned the Monte Carlo simulation, can we do a role play? So if I'm a stakeholder, I don't know what's Monte Carlo, Monte Carlo uh, simulation. Can you explain it to me? Yeah, yeah, sure. We can try. Okay. Um, you want me to go? Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, so, you know, let's take a, a circle, mm-hmm. right? If we look at, uh, we can derive like the shape of a circle, mm-hmm. right? We can um, mathematically create a function to draw a circle, yeah. right? So rather than drawing a circle, what we can do is we can randomly sample from like another circle or from mm-hmm. a, a distribution. Yeah. And through that again, rather than drawing this line, we can create a, we can remake another circle from sampling from another Mm -hmm. one. So what does that mean? Probably not my best explanation, but um, it means that we're just taking data that happened before and we're pulling from it randomly Mm -hmm. and then we're creating something new with that data. And so if we're just creating one circle from another circle, that's not going to create additional value, Mm -hmm. right? But if we're creating a new circle or a new shape, from a, a bunch of different shapes and a bunch of diff- different distributions. Yeah. For us to do the math on that, it'd mm-hmm. be really difficult. But for us to sample and see what that looks like on another page mm-hmm. would be relatively easy, right? It'd be easy, but the results would be really good. Yeah. So I think it'd probably be easier to understand from a sports example. Like mm-hmm. I'd be explaining it in sports. I probably should have started with that. But um, if we wanted to see, for example, how well a quarterback, uh, a football quarterback would play mm-hmm. against a new team, something we could do is we could look at all of their past performances mm-hmm. versus all of that other team's past performances. Yeah. And we could just randomly draw in um, all of the quarterback's performance and have them play like theoretical uh, games against each other. Mm-hmm. And that would give us like a win percentage of the quarterback or performance distribution of the quarterback. And that could help us understand what their the perspective outcomes might be. And so rather than, than just using static examples we can create new data and see what might happen in the future by doing this type of simulation mm-hmm. yeah um good job <laughs> i think i really like well, that to to, <laughs> to recap 
Um, I really like that. Of course, you didn't go into hey, like mathematically, what is it like, right? You start with examples, specifically an example they are familiar with. So this is what happens in this use case. So you take them in that picture, in that story, and it's easier for them to get the kind of the abstract of the problems. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know why I started with the circle. The football analogy is way better. So yeah, it's what I'm used to doing anyway. <laughs> Um, and uh, for sports analytics, you recommend uh, some strategies to athletes. And uh, previously, I also worked on some sports-related projects. Uh, I think one thing I'm always curious about what other people, how other people do this, is how do you measure the impact? So you recommended taking this action, make a change, but during the game. There can be a lot of different type of variables, and then sometimes, well, golf. I don't know if it's related to opponents. So, how do you know the thing you recommend actually uh, improve their performance? How do you close that loop? So that's currently one of the biggest challenges we face, right? Like we know what we can recommend, but how do you get feedback back on that that is significant rather、yeah. than just being noise, like? It's really, really difficult to tell, and that makes it difficult to sell this type of work, right? Because that loop doesn't necessarily close. It takes a long period of time. It takes a lot of games. It takes a lot of samples, and we're in the process of collecting that data of, of outcomes, right? And we're trying to get to a critical mass of data where we can say definitively, like, this has helped this much. This has made you this much money. This has helped you create this many wins relative to what you were doing before. But as as it stands right now, that's still a, a a huge area of improvement that we're trying to think through. Yeah,、um, and I actually think that that's a, a industry wide problem. Like people、mm-hmm. know sports analytics work. Yeah, because teams that have、uh, hired sports analytics people on aggregate have performed significantly better.、Mm-hmm. But that's at a super macro level. At a micro level, like how does it help us win this game? Really, really difficult to tell. You know, because there's just you know, if we're only changing the probability of winning by two percent, you're still going to have losses, right? You're still going to have times when you're blown out.、Mm-hmm. You're still going to have really bad scenarios that happen. But it's hard to convince a manager, a GM,、uh, an owner of focusing on the long term of a couple years where a project will pay off、mm. versus a couple games and. And I think that that's an industry thing,、uh, like a paradigm shift they're going to have to make to really start winning. Like teams that understand that and are, are willing to let analytics do its thing, breathe a little bit, and collect the data on outcomes, are going to, in five, ten years, absolutely blow away the competition, in my opinion. Yeah.、Um, so besides this, what are some other challenges in sports analytics? I think something a lot of people don't realize is like this: the The difficulty of of breaking into the field. We got really lucky; we were able to win these contracts. But you think about the number of sports analytics positions out there. If you want to work in performance analytics, like we do, effectively, there's only a certain number of teams. Like most leagues have thirty, thirty-two teams,、um, and there's what four or five different sports leagues. And at any given point in time, there might only be a couple positions, like maybe one position open at each one. You know, so you're looking at You know, 130 positions maybe.、Mm-hmm. 
for everyone that's interested in sports analytics, that's really small. Yeah. And because of the demand so high, honestly, the salaries are, are relatively low in comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, there are consultants and things like that where it might be a little bit different. But that's a constraint that you have to think about. Like, you're going to be doing data science and not all sports analytics is like working with the players or doing fun stuff. A lot of yeah. it is just like sitting behind a computer doing normal data science, mm-hmm. but on sports data. So if you're interested in creating the best financial outcomes for yourself, I probably wouldn't recommend going into sports analytics. Mm-hmm. But if you're really passionate about it, these are the types of problems that keep you up at night and get you excited, absolutely go for it. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, uh, so when you do um, sports analytics, I think a lot of your recommendation probably are secret sauce. So without getting into a lot of uh, details, are there any like high impact project um, you can share with us? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't share the specifics of it, but I can sort of sure. share a little bit about what yeah. we do. So something we do for the Ryder Cup is that the way the system works is there are usually eight captain's picks. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sorry, eight people that qualify for the team based on points. And then there's another four players that qualify based on a captain's pick. And that means the captain of the team gets to choose anyone from like the U.S. to to work, to work play on the team, right? And there's a, a lot of analysis that we do to make sure that they're picking the people that would be the best fit for the course, the best yeah. fit, fit for the team, and things along those lines. So... A unique problem, a unique constraint is the course that they play for the Ryder Cup is not a course that they generally play over the course of the year. Hmm. So we have to figure out how to evaluate if a player will perform well on a course that they don't have any data for. Mm, yeah. So that's something that we spend a lot of time thinking about. How do we do that as, as effectively as possible? You mm-hmm. know, is it simulation? Are we looking at the closest courses to that? Are we looking at it on a by hole basis? Are there more similar holes to what they're going to be playing this this year, or this uh, this tournament? So, I, I think that if you're interested, those are the types of problems we're looking at. I'll give other. I'll let other people guess at how we actually <laughs> come to those solutions. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And uh, it's very interesting. You previously mentioned sometimes um, the sports manager hesitant in investing. Uh, the equipment to collect data. I think that's what every data scientist faces in their team. Sometimes they need to talk to the engineering team to help them um, implement some uh, data collection mechanism. So for example, when you want to convince uh, a manager to invest in equipment or analytics, uh, how would you approach that? So a lot of the times that's not, I mean, like, our convincing is convincing people to hire us, right? Okay, yeah. And we're a little bit at the whim of the data that they have. I've seen it internally to organizations where, you know, some people are really pro analytics and other people just don't think it's that important, mm-hmm. right? And it, that's a difficult kind of battle to be in. And it's something that I think is not necessarily solvable by us, right? There's a cultural change that needs to happen in organizations for them to buy into data. And you see that not just in sports, you see that in in every space. I will say sports more so than general industry. I think that there's just this massive imbalance. There's a huge dichotomy of the haves and haves nots, mm-hmm. have nots. There's some teams that are all in that are doing it and that are really progressive and successful. And then there are other teams that have absolutely no data science presence or no data analytics presence. And 
you have to have a change of ownership. You have to have a change of, of an organizational change to be able to, to make that transition. And I wouldn't say it's impossible, but especially in the sports domain, you need really strong lobbying power. You usually need a change of organization to yeah. get to get that buy-in, mm-hmm. which is a little sad, right? I mean, yeah. I hate to say, I'm not going to say that it's impossible for you to build it on your own, mm-hmm. but usually you need a very monumental shift, yeah. uh, which I don't think necessarily is the case in industry. Mm-hmm. I think it can be done just talking about value and thinking about how the business stakeholders are viewing things mm-hmm. just a lot harder in sports. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, and uh, so you mentioned when you analyze your own data or performance, other people's performance data, you come in with a question. And I think um, depends on how mature the data pipeline is. Sometimes the data is messy. It doesn't have the answer to your question. Uh, so I'm curious, during the trajectory of the project, how do you pivot? How do you know, okay, this is the question we cannot answer, or this is a bad question, and let's answer another question. How do you do that uh, type of transition? When do you know you need to um, kind of pivot? I usually have like a like an 80-20 rule. Mm-hmm. So like Pareto principle, a lot of, yeah. called by a lot of different things. And so I'm constantly thinking about the 20% of things that create 80% of the positive outcomes that we want. Mm. And I think you can apply that to a data science project as well. Like we get, we get into a certain point where we say, Hey, is this going to add to that 80%? Yeah. Or is this some of the noise? And if I know going in that 80% of the things are going to be noise Mm and 20% of the things are going to be useful, it becomes a lot easier for me to move on from something. I used to have this huge problem where I would over-optimize, just like a Kaggle competition. Yeah. You're trying to get those extra 1%, whatever it is. I will say that's one of the things that is very different from Kaggle in real world is yeah. that a lot of the time there's just good enough is just good enough and then you iterate, right? right? There isn't a final solution. No data science problem in the real world, in mm-hmm. my opinion, is ever done, right? You either have to retrain or you have to iterate and improve. And so it's a continuous process. And you just have to think about, again, opportunity cost. If I spend more time working on this, mm. might I get actually better return working on a, another part of this yeah. project? Yeah. Um, I think it's very important to know when it's good enough. Um, for example, maybe your model is not that perfect, but you launch it fast enough, you can make a lot of um, impact. And then after the model is launched, maybe you still have ways to keep improving that, iterating it. Um, do you have any set of rules or uh, mental models on like when to stop uh, working on a model, when is good enough? Yeah. So I am a huge fan of just creating baselines. I mean, mm-hmm. it's something very basic yeah. that everyone does. Right. But you know, if I, if I run something, let's say a classification, I'll use naive bays and I'll run a random forest classification mm-hmm. and just see what they do from a baseline. And then I kind of look at the difference between those two. Usually random forest performs better. And I say, okay, can I get by tuning models and trying some different models better than what the difference between the naive bays and the random forest is, right? Like to me, that's a very high level heuristic benchmark might not be attainable, but that is how you could in theory draw a line in the sand say, Hey, like this might be done enough in this scenario, just looking and thinking about, Hey, how much more, how much better could I actually make this is, is pretty relevant. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, I think we're in a world where, model to parameter tuning and things like that. I'm not going to say it's going to become obsolete, but what's going to be most relevant is 
like the specific model we use and how quickly we can get it into production and useful because we're going to want to be training these things as we go and improving them as we go to keep data as relevant and new as possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's something that I think a lot of people forget about is that we need to keep retraining these models, right? If we optimize the models for old data, we're not necessarily making the best possible model. Mm -hmm. So in theory, it's actually a more optimal solution to create a slightly, not slightly like underfit model, but to create a model that can generalize as we go with new data rather than just make the best possible one for that data set when that data set is subject to change. Yeah, uh, that's such a great point. Um, Start with a simple solution and you can always add uh, um, complexity to it. And you can also do multi-stage modeling. Um, And you mentioned getting the baseline. I think that's super important. Even if you create a model that has uh, 95% accuracy, maybe the baseline was 96%. Um, so knowing the baseline help us to know when should we stop and also help us to know like how much more impact your model is generating. Um, and when you sometimes facing a new challenge, you don't really have the baseline. Um, how do you get a proxy of the uh, baseline? So uh, you can either run a very basic model if you have the data for it. Or you ask someone who has knowledge about the domain. Mm. I mean, that's something I think we forget about a lot. It's like always rely on these technical tools. But if someone's been doing it, if someone's been analyzing it, why not just ask them and see what their performance is like? They might have data. They might have done analysis already and just borrow that. You don't have to Mm -hmm. necessarily recreate the wheel a lot of times. Yeah. Um, That's a great advice. I think sometimes data scientists want to build everything on their own. Uh, When have a new project, see what other people have done online. Maybe you can just, uh, you know, use part of their code or ask your colleague what they have worked on and you don't have to build everything from scratch. Although that's a very important skill. Yeah, I actually had a friend who, when he was in grad school, he built all of his models from scratch. Yeah. Instead of using scikit-learn or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And... I was like, what are you doing, dude? He's like, yeah, I realized that I didn't have to do that afterwards and it was amazing. But, you know, I, I can't imagine how much more time that would have taken. But, yeah. hey, more power to him. But I think that's a great way for you to learn anything because yeah. I remember when I first learning um, deep learning, I was taking a course in Amazon, actually. The homework was to code like uh, linear regression, all the optimization in Python. And you have to write your own optimization function. I think that's painful but uh, that help you understand the concept better and also give you more confidence when later on you do transfer learning you know what was going on there okay i calculated that yeah well i I did do something similar with um just most of the deep learning frameworks and we had to build all the regularization and those types of things in and we had to do it in matlab Mm. and i don't like matlab very much it was (laughs) it was not fun i wish i could have done it in python i'm jealous yeah (laughs) So previously we talked about if you were to learn data science again, what would you do? So um, are there anything, looking back on your career, are there anything you would do um, differently if you have the chance? I'm not one to have any regrets. Like I, I'm pretty happy with my, with my career and, mm-hmm. and how things turned out. Yeah. I think I would have just started things sooner. Mm-hmm. I think so many people, especially when they start learning data science, they're scared of taking the wrong course. Right? Yeah. Like, is this the right yeah. course? What's the best possible course? Right. All these things. And it, it really doesn't matter. Pretty much every course out there is really good. Mm-hmm. If you 
spent all that time worrying, actually studying data science, you'd be a little bit further ahead already. And people look at learning as like supplementary. Like if I take this one course, I can't take this other course, yeah. right? That's not the case. All learning is additive. Mm-hmm. I mean, many data scientists take multiple courses on the same thing. I've refreshed on multiple different statistics courses. I've refreshed on multiple different Python courses and they've been additive. They've all helped me and I've learned and taken different things away from them. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that, A, if I took this one course, I couldn't ever take this other course again in the future, right? But for some reason, we trap ourselves into that way of thinking. It's this course or no course is the only thing I'm going to do. And I think that that's wrong. I, I also say if you don't like a resource, like switch. Yeah. There's so many good resources that you have a benefit of saying, hey, you know, I, I have a course on how to start your career in data science. If someone doesn't like how I talk, if they don't like my mannerisms, <laughs> if they don't like how I present information, mm-hmm. there's other good courses out there yeah. and they should absolutely go that other direction, right? Mm-hmm. To me, you know, I think that there will be enough people that like my style of teaching that it's worth it for me and it's worth it for those people. Yeah. But you have options and you should use them. Mm-hmm. But again, you shouldn't have the the like par- be paralyzed by how many choices there are. You still have to choose. So my recommendation, sorry, being a little long-winded, but my recommendation is to set a time frame for yourself mm. to experiment and see other things. Maybe it's two weeks yeah. and then choose the best option. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I can totally relate to that because I have made that mistake. There are so many courses. Which one should I pick? I think earlier in my career, I always want to optimize things, optimize my career journey. What is the fastest way to get a promotion? What is the fast way to learn data science? But then <clears throat> I realize a lot of times when I just spend deciding, I'm slowing myself down. And once you get started, you have that momentum like, can mention if you don't like it, you can always change to another course. Um, I think it's good to commit to a course if it's good, but also you don't feel obligated. Oh, I sign up for a course is bad. I have to finish that just because I paid and it's just a, a sunk cost. And I think actually a lot of courses will refund your money if you've only taken a short portion mm-hmm. of them, things like that. And read the terms and conditions. Absolutely use those. I mean, if someone again, wanted a refund on my course after they'd only taken the first two segments, I wouldn't be offended by that. It's like, hey, this is your, you know, I want you to get the most out of your learning. It's clearly not here. Totally fine, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for the data scientists who already have some experience, they want to become a senior data scientist or like you become a head of a data science team. What is your advice for them? So my first advice is to look for opportunities within your organization and just make the job that you want, right? If there's a type of role that you want to be working on within your organization, ask to do some of that work, try and interface with those those people, propose the projects that you want to do, yeah. right? A lot of the times, I think you'll be surprised that people, your employers, your friends will go along with those things, mm-hmm. right? Because if you're excited about working on a project, if you think it creates value, Odds are someone else in the organization does too. And it's pretty easy to find advocates like that. So my biggest thing around promotion and finding success in your career is to ask for what you want. Well, figure out what you want first and find a way to do that in your current role. Find a way to do that outside of your work. You know, I do a lot of community building and those types of things, something I'm very passionate about. But, you know, I, I probably prefer to do it on my own forever. But that doesn't mean that I haven't built those skills if I wanted to take that into a, a corporate sphere at some point again in the future. Yeah. So maybe my advice 
to boil my advice down, it's do the work you'd like to be doing now. Mm. Yeah, that's a great advice. I think a lot of times people are just afraid to ask um, and afraid to make the jump. Maybe there is an opportunity. Your manager looking for someone to take the lead, and uh, um, you just need to ask. You only get what you ask for. Yeah. Well, you know the thing is. How often are people penalized for taking the initiative,、mm-hmm. saying they want something to work?、Right. It's, it's usually the opposite, right? It's、mm-hmm. like, oh, you're not interested in enough projects, or、oh, you're kind of slacking off, or whatever. You know, I don't know why people think that their their boss, their manager, whatever it is, is going to be like turned off by them saying you want to do more at work, right? Or, right?、Mm-hmm. Like, to me, that's a weird paradox、yeah. that. Some people are just irrationally afraid of.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And also, even if your manager doesn't think you are ready,、uh, I think this shows your hunger of growth. So, your when you、uh, have this type of conversation, your manager might be like, "Okay, let's design a path for you," and then they might assign more high impact. Project for you just because you showed your passion to grow. Although it might not happen immediately, but you have more opportunities. So even if you just join a team,、um, maybe not immediately, but after say three to six months, you can ask,、oh, "What is it like、uh, to grow to the next level? What do I need to do?" Not like you want a promotion right now, but you start to、uh, have a plan. Yeah, like how is your manager, anyone, supposed to know? What you want,、yeah. right? Without you telling them.、Mm-hmm. So, I mean, maybe everyone—it's assumed everyone wants a promotion. But do you want to continue to get promoted as an individual contributor,、mm-hmm. or do you want to manage, or you want to do whatever? If you're not vocal about that, how how are they supposed to know that, right? I mean, I have this problem with my girlfriend all the time. It's like, Ken, you didn't tell me you wanted X Y Z, and I'm like,、oh, <laughs> good, you're right, right? Like, so, you know, to me, I look at it the same as content, right? If I'm putting Content, my YouTube videos out there. People know what I'm about. They know I'm interested in sports analytics. Yeah, magically, sports analytics opportunities appear、mm. in front of me. Right. Yeah. I vocalize that I like going on podcasts. I like having podcast guests.、Mm-hmm. I like speaking, doing whatever. Yeah. Magically, those opportunities come to me. Right.、Mm-hmm. If you're in your workplace and you're saying, "Hey, these are the things I want to do at this company," your your boss knows that. If an opportunity to do that at your company comes up. Your boss has you ingrained in their head that you're interested in that. Why wouldn't they forward that along or or do something like that for you? So just speaking it into existence, I think the concept is kind of silly, but it's real in the sense that if you speak it, other people will hear it. Other、right. people are listening, and they can help you actualize what you want. Yeah, that's a great point. So、um, we talk about opportunity,、um, promotion. So from a skill set or a mindset perspective, from junior data scientist to senior lead data scientist, what do you think differentiate them? So I think from a skill set, I find that documentation is unbelievably important.、Mm-hmm. So as people progress in their careers, I mean, some junior data scientists are awesome at it, but I find that what separates a really Good senior data scientist from really good junior data scientist is that anyone can pick up their code and use it. They're very clear about how they communicate, and they're very organized. It's not necessarily a technical skill difference,、mm. right? It is that the reliability of their work is significantly higher. Yeah. And do I think that that comes from experience? Maybe a little bit, but that's something you can easily implement, implement and improve. And the hard thing is that's not a fun thing to improve,、mm-hmm. right? And that's why a lot of people, I think, 
struggle to advance sometimes. Yeah. But if you want a really clear way to move up in your career is like document things well, be able to communicate very well. And I, I look at documentation and communication as very similar, right? Like mm. documenting your work is one style of communicating. There's written and there's also spoken communication. Yeah. And I think you can rise to become a senior data scientist without necessarily improving your presentation skills or inter- mm-hmm. like interpersonal communication yeah. skills. Uh, but it, it also depends on the company and what they index on. Some mm-hmm. some companies want your, the data scientist to present everything and it's great. Some companies want the data scientist to just, you know, do the work. And if they want to present, great. If they don't, like someone on the team will present the findings because that's what they specialize in and they're better at. So yeah. uh, that, that would be my advice to make that transition. Also, continuously learn. Go mm-hmm. to go to conferences. Try and speak at conferences. Yeah. Right. The quickest way to become uh, a senior data scientist is to be like a junior or, or a normal data scientist. Present at a couple conferences, cool stuff. People are going to be knocking down your door to go work for them. Yeah. You know, it, most. I would say it's easier to to go from junior data scientist to senior data scientist by company transition mm-hmm. than internally to be yeah. perfectly honest um and that is in my mind a major shortcut to be able mm-hmm. to do that yeah and the previously you mentioned because of your youtube channel uh podcast you did so there are companies found you um so can you share some other benefits or stories where opportunities appear because of your um, online presence yeah, I mean, I didn't start it with this intention, but for example, on YouTube, I've been able to do a couple awesome sponsorships. Mm. I mean, I worked with NVIDIA, I worked with HP, and yeah. HP is still, I'm still one of their global ambassadors. Mm-hmm. And to me, those would obviously never have happened if I wasn't a presence, if I didn't have this branding associated with yeah. me, if I wasn't producing things and, and sharing them with the world. And, you know, for me, I'm not looking for work. I enjoy what I do. And, and fortunately, I can create an awesome living in sports analytics and I'm able to also do that with content creation Mm -hmm. now but for someone trying to land a job just putting yourself out there can get you on people's radars right there's so many people once they started posting on LinkedIn once they've done things like my 66 days of data challenge Mm -hmm. they've been able to find opportunities because they're just on recruiters radars right like think about it job recruiters sit there on LinkedIn and just look for people who they could forward onto a position or might be a good fit. If you're posting on LinkedIn and people are sharing your work, the odds of your post showing up on their timeline and them thinking you might be a good fit because they saw something cool goes up exponentially. It's like infinitely higher than if you didn't post anything and they didn't see anything. Yeah. Right? And I, I call that like structured serendipity or like, you know, created serendipity mm. Because you're making your own luck in that sense. And luck in, in this world is having a probability that you show up or your work that is relevant to you shows up in front of someone else where your work is relevant to them. Yeah. And so the more you do that, the more small pieces of content you put out there, the more very small percents add up that that content gets put in front of the exact right person. Because these algorithms, YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, they're designed to find an audience for content, right? You outsource the hard part. You outsource like the cold email by just posting on these platforms. right? And I think there's a ton of terrible stuff associated with algorithms and like 
addiction and those types of things. Mm-hmm. I, I face it on Instagram, but I've in a more powerful way seen the benefits of a lot of these algorithms for creating an audience for myself and for them locating the opportunities that I was looking for. Yeah. Um, I love it. You, you basically said that you can uh, put yourself out there. You can engineer luck. It's not random. Um, and uh, for a data science who doesn't need to uh, have a lot of some sponsorship, but but just want to build their portfolio, and uh, but there are a lot of platforms. Um, they can have a GitHub, have a blog, a Medium, YouTube, LinkedIn. Uh, what's your advice for them to pick one for them? Yeah, I mean, it depends what your goal is, mm-hmm. right? If your goal is to land a job, LinkedIn is probably really relevant. Something that is also really important is just having a uh, like a personal website and having searchability on Google, right? Something that a lot of people don't realize. Every single candidate that's ever come in, I've Googled, right? You just check them out and it's like, oh, yeah. what, what comes up, right? right? If you have a really strong presence, you're going to find something and you find something interesting, mm-hmm. that person's going to stick out in your mind. And so just creating content also makes you more searchable, which is a huge benefit in a lot of ways, unless what they're finding is not good stuff. But hopefully it's good stuff. (laughs) Maybe if you produce enough good content, it overshadows any of the bad content that you might have had. So, um, yeah, I think that's important. I always recommend LinkedIn. I recommend having a personal website because that's just a way that you can, to an even further extent, control someone's interaction and you're like their understanding of your Mm -hmm. brand, right? You have complete control over your own website. You only have limited control over LinkedIn or these other platforms. GitHub is also really important. I don't think I've ever hired a technical candidate without looking at their GitHub. I also think Kaggle is pretty powerful. Kaggle is a unique way where you can be a bit more of a community member than GitHub, or it's like a lot more visible to be able to be a community member. There's badges and there's, oh, I guess there's medals technically. And, you know, if someone is has a lot of medals in a community or discussion forum, that tells me something about that person, right? Um, uh, those are the main ones I would generally recommend. I think you should at bare minimum have a LinkedIn and a GitHub profile. Though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, thanks for sharing that. And uh, some people talk to me, I think they're worried. Oh, what if nobody click on my personal website? I think that's okay uh, to start with. You don't need to worry about the SEO. Um, just something when someone, uh, when you talk to a recruiter, you can share it, right? It's a link. It's a portfolio of your projects. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Usually people have the opposite problem. They're like, what if everyone sees and it's bad and those types of things. Mm-hmm. And you solve that by producing more content too, right? If yeah. you've made 200 posts, people look at the body of your work rather than mm-hmm. an individual post significantly more. Yeah. And that's made it easier for me to produce more content is mm-hmm. that, hey, I've produced so many of these other things. Like It's just a drop in the bucket at this point. right? Yeah. I, I still want to produce good work. I don't want to make a fool of myself. Right. But it's so much less intimidating if you've done it a couple of times and mm-hmm. you have this body of work. But at the same time, who's going to look at someone's first post? Yeah. Right? Unless you're really famous <laughs> and people are going back. But like the first one should be not intimidating at all because no one's going to read it. Right. And even if it's bad, you can always make uh, another post. You can delete it and uh, write something better later. You can always iterate that. I think that's also... I have that fear. I always want to, oh, I want to maybe create some videos and try it, but what if I don't like this video? I know that I can always create another one, but there's just this fear to start. Well, I think that there's something really powerful of about seeing someone improve over time. Mm. And I leave up all my old videos except one um, because 
people can see how far that I've come. Yeah. Right. He said, wow, the editing was really bad. The audio quality mm. was bad. He stumbled over his words a lot in that one. And each video I made a conscious effort to try something new or experiment or improve one area. And I think over time that's hopefully shown in my content. Yeah. Right. And that's also a, a good way to approach any of this is that if someone goes in your GitHub and they see something old you did and then they see something new and you can see improvement, mm-hmm. to me, that's a very tangible, positive thing. I don't think anyone's going to be like, wow, this project you did four years ago as a sophomore in college is garbage. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're going to be looking at recent stuff. Right. Thanks for sharing that. And I appreciate that you leave everything you created um, on YouTube so people can see uh, how you grow. For example, um, if you create a, a YouTube video and then not a lot of people responded to it and that does it give you some uh, mental stress? Like how do you keep creating content while not getting affected by other people's response? Well, so there's two parts. I mean, everyone cares what what people think of the yeah. videos they create. I mm-hmm. mean, I, I wouldn't go as far as calling what I do art, but I think it's like my creation. It's something yeah. special to me. But I don't necessarily make all my videos for other people. Mm. Right? I make videos because I enjoy making videos and I like the process and I like trying new things and I like storytelling. And part of storytelling is the person listening to the story. But part of storytelling also is the creator and how it makes you feel. And so I over time, I've been able to do a lot better job of saying, hey, am I proud of what I'm producing? Is this fun for me to produce it out there? And if people watch it or don't watch it, I'm still happy it's out there because it's something I'm passionate about. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, maybe last month, two months ago, I made a video called Why Everyone Should Start a Podcast. Mm-hmm. Right? I think that podcasting is really unique and special in this day and age, especially when with social media, a lot of transactions are interpersonal. Like you send your best friend a bunch of memes, right? Yeah. But you're, you know, you're not actually knowing how they're doing or, or what's going on or right. what they care about, what are their ambitions, whatever mm-hmm. it is. And podcasting is this forum where like neither of us have our phones out. Mm-hmm. We're talking and we're learning about each other for legitimately an hour, hour and yeah. a half, right? And that type of interpersonal connection in 2022, I think is a little bit rare. And I think that a podcast is a way to formulaically inject that into your life. And that's something that I I believe I'm like way better off of because of. Um, But that was something I thought was really important for me to share because this experience, you know, having my own podcast, talking to other people on podcasts, to me, it's been like a a legitimately life-changing experience, right? I changed how I view people. I've made a lot of incredible friends and I, um, you know, literally not like very few people watched it for, for my standards and like, that's totally okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's not the end of the world, but I'm really happy it's out there still. Yeah. So if you don't know what to create for other people, create something for yourself that bring your, uh, bring yourself joy. And then, you know, there's going to be a lot of people that are similar to you and they might gravitate around it. And then that's how you um, build your audience and find your voice. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, I think, First, when you're starting out, you have to make content for yourself mm-hmm. because that'll that's the only way you'll keep doing it, right? If you're excited about making it every day. I know I've seen a lot of people who just want to get into YouTube or content creation for the money, right? And that's just, a, in my opinion, a terrible idea. So something I found really quickly is that the hourly rate for me on YouTube still yeah. is like... 10 bucks an hour, (laughs) right? Yeah. And I've had good sponsorships. I've done like that. And I mean, maybe with sponsors and things along those lines, it's a little bit different. But Mm -hmm. if I'm looking purely at ad revenue, it's just 
like not worth your financial time, right? And I would have burned out really easily and really quickly if I was working for $10 an hour when I make significantly more than that as a data scientist, right? And so to me, the prerequisite is to like it enough that you'll do it consistently, no matter how much money you make or how many people watch or whatever it is. And if you can stick around long enough to get through that and you can still enjoy it after you've started to get some income and stuff, then you might be able to turn the monetization switch on and be able to to create a career or whatever it is out of it. But yeah. you sort of have to have that that school of hard knocks first mm-hmm. to to see if it's if, if it's a good fit for you. Yeah. And how do you balance your YouTube creation um, with your data science job? Balance is, is a struggle for me always, yeah. but I don't really believe in balance. So there's no like states of balance, ba- mm-hmm. like pure balance in yeah. nature, right? Everything is constantly in motion. And so I think of quote unquote balance as like squeezing what will fit in the time that is relevant. So some, mm-hmm. work, some weeks for work, I'll work like 20 hours, yeah. right? For my actual job, some weeks I'll work like 80 hours. Mm-hmm. The, works I week, the weeks I work 20 hours, I'll do a lot of content creation and okay. the, week 80, yeah. in the weeks I work 80 hours, I'll do very little content yeah. creation. And so it's about making it fit. I've also found that delegation is really valuable. Mm. This year I started working with an editor, my, my friend Tony, and he is awesome. It's great to work with him. The production quality has gone up tremendously. It's better than I would have done. And I started thinking about, wow, how much time would I have to spend learning about video editing to produce something of that quality, Yeah. right? And the amount of time is, I mean, it, it, again, at my hourly rate is not, is not worth it. <laughs> and so valuing your hours and thinking about where you can delegate. I've also uh, hired a, Anthony, an assistant. Mm. And I mean, he's so much more than an assistant. He's very overqualified to be my assistant, but he does really great stuff and it, it saves me, you know, another couple hours a week. And if yeah. we're thinking about my hourly rate, what is, you know, I'm getting that time back and in theory I could turn that into yeah. some other type of work. So mm-hmm. those are two things that I really, really recommend for finding balance is yeah. just finding ways to outsource, delegate, and looking at time as sort of a fluid thing and fitting things in when you can. Yeah, I agree. It's really hard to find a balance, but it's how you integrate a tool into your life. Um, and you also talk a lot about personal development, growth. Uh, what made you want to share that with uh, more data scientists? So I think data science can, especially the interview process, can be really defeating. It can yeah. be pretty sad. You know, you're applying to a bunch of companies. The average callback rate for data science is like 2.5% from mm-hmm. a traditional job board like Glassdoor or LinkedIn. And if you're coming from school where you're a 38 GPA student and you've had a lot of successes, you're getting A's on everything to go into the environment where, you know, you're flipping the other side of the equation where you're in the, you know, you're losing yeah. 98% of the time. That's, you don't know how to take that in your psyche, mm-hmm. right? And realizing that it's okay and using a baseline, right? If people are getting callbacks at 5%, they're doing unbelievably well, right? They're doing hundred percent better than, than the average person. Yeah, And just reframing things in that way and realizing that as you're interviewing, you're growing mm-hmm. or you're learning how to improve and do better in the next interview and realizing that with data science, you can't have a static mindset, right? You have to have a growth mindset. You have to realize that who you are today is not who you are tomorrow. To me, that's 
unbelievably valuable. And I don't think anyone can really have success in this domain if they aren't able to to grow as a person as they go. Um, and that's a shift that 100% people can make with, I think, relative ease. Yeah. You just have to have these sort of wins. But I just see so many people get discouraged with the learning process. They get discouraged with the job process. They get discouraged when they finally land that data science role and it isn't mm-hmm. what they expect. There's so much information out there that isn't related to data science. It's related to mental health yeah. and to personal improvement and and maybe even like self-help. I love self-help books. I mm-hmm. read so many that we can just borrow some of those things, some of those concepts and make it relevant for the people in the domain. Something I hope to do is to make those a little more accessible to data scientists by looking at data, mm-hmm. right? If you're quantifying these things, like the benchmark of how many data scientists get a callback, then it makes it like real to yeah. a lot of people. It makes it relevant. Mm-hmm. And so I, I hope that I can give some people at least a little bit more peace of mind. Yeah, um, that's such a good uh, perspective. Sometimes when we think about data science, we just apply it to our work, but we need to bring the same mindset to our life. Uh, and you mentioned you love self-help books. So what are a few of your favorite books? Uh, so The One Thing is one of my favorite books. I read that before I started making YouTube a regular thing mm-hmm. for, I think it was 2018 or it was 2019. YouTube was my one thing that year. And I went from I'm like 3,000 subscribers to 100,000. Wow. Right? So I just knew that that was the not the most important thing in my life, mm-hmm. but it was the most important professional entrepreneurial thing that I was working on. Yeah. And I saw the power of the one thing. And that's where I let you learn about the 80-20 principle and all those things. Mm-hmm. Atomic Habits is another one of my favorite books. It talks about how habits make a lot of difficult things relatively effortless. Mm-hmm. And the way that we create habits is by starting really small. So let's say I wanted to start getting in shape, right? It'd be it's a lot of overhead to go from ne- not exercising to going to the gym for a half an hour, three days a week, or let's say becoming a bodybuilder and going every day for an hour, right? Yeah. There has to be some gradient there. We have to ease into that process. Mm-hmm. And the easiest way is to start with a atomic habit, which is the smallest kernel of what a habit is. So if I wanted to get in shape, the atomic habit would be like, maybe if I can do one push up a day, right? That's something I can do every single day. If I'm not feeling good, if, if whatever it is, it takes me five seconds to get on the floor and do one. And most people, they're like, I look really stupid just doing one push up down here, right? So might as well do a couple, yeah. right? And then you're not penalized if you only do one, but you're incentivized to do more and, and expand and ingrain that mm-hmm. habit further. So that's actually where my 66 Days of Data initiative came from. In the same book, James Clear talks about how it takes 66 days to ingrain a new habit. Oh, okay. And so the 66 days of data, for those who aren't familiar, is this initiative where I try to encourage people to create better learning habits and data science habits by participating in this for 66 mm-hmm. days. So you just have to learn some aspect of data science for at least five minutes, kind of the atomic habit. Yeah. You know, five minutes, I would hope anyone can do at any single day, mm-hmm. unless it's like 11.59 and you forgot. <laughs> um And the other part of that is sharing it on whatever platform you want Mm -hmm. to keep that accountability as well as that track record. So Mm -hmm. we talked about how producing content is so important. Something to me that is an easy thing to do is just post what you're working on and you can build this track record of what you're working on, your track record, all, you know, and any of this stuff, your body of work. Mm -hmm. So hopefully it kills three birds with one stone. Yeah, that's awesome. 
When I think about the atomic habits, it kind of reminds me of the concept of learning rates when we train a deep learning model, right? You don't want to like have a super big learning rate. You just want to make some small changes, and then maybe you will find the optimal point. And、uh, yeah, thanks for sharing that. And tell us more about the sixty-six days of data.、Um, can you share some success stories? Of the participants. Yeah, I mean, we've had multiple participants land land jobs during that period.、Mm-hmm. Get reached out to recruiters. Something I'm most proud of is we've been able to bring in incredible partners that have given away a bunch of free stuff. So 365 Data Science、yeah. has given away quite a few three month and annual、uh, classes coursework.、Mm-hmm. Pact right now is partnering with the program. We're giving away an ebook every single day. Yeah, we've had Udemy as a partner where. For for a while, every winner was getting a, a a credit, and I mean to me that's really important is creating a community that makes learning and these things accessible.、Mm. And we've also had a lot of really cool learner initiatives. So some people have started a study group, so where people are working on a similar topic and they're able to share what they're working on. And so that's on any platform, LinkedIn, Twitter. But the biggest community is on Discord, where I think we have around eleven thousand members now. Wow! So it's it's grown pretty well, and I mean, ho- hopefully, people are seeing that pop up on、mm-hmm. LinkedIn or on their Twitter or whatever it might be. Yeah, thanks for sharing that.、Um, so, over your career, do you have any mentors? So, I've I've always struggled with mentors.、Mm-hmm. I have found that. My ambitions for most of my mentors were beyond what they were currently doing. Okay, and that doesn't mean that I can't learn from people or、mm-hmm. can't have good experiences. But growing up, I always looked at mentors as like this holy person where you're like it's aspirational for you to ever、yeah. get there and whatever it is. And when I kind of got in the real world, I realized that there's like a ceiling for everyone. Like maybe if Elon Musk was like, "Hey, like, you want to be a mentor?" <laughs> like, I'd be like, "Yeah, absolutely," because I don't think I could. Aspire to that, but I haven't found anyone within my immediate network that I've been able to say like, "Wow, I can like unbelievably learn from、mm. this person." On the other hand, I find a tremendous amount of mentorship and and guidance from books. Right,、yeah. you read and you're looking into someone's mind where this is what they've specialized in. They're、mm-hmm. the expert in this field, and they've took all of their knowledge and put it into this one volume for、yeah. you to consume. So you're getting this hyper concentrated dose of understanding, and to me, that's almost as good as any mentorship could possibly be. Like I'm not looking for life mentorship. My life、mm-hmm. is going to be very different from the next person's, but mentorship in my mind is very localized to specific scenarios, and it's honestly easier for me to find a book with that localized scenario、mm-hmm. to to learn from than it is to find the person. And also, you have to deal with other people's times, and like、yeah. my time is difficult because I'm doing quite a bit of things. So,、mm. I, I think as I've grown, like I have close friends that I go to for advice, but I'm still working on the mentorship thing. I'm, yeah, I'm a little, yeah, I'm a little snooty with that stuff.、Yeah. So I need to get better. No, I think whatever works for you.、Um, if the books help you, help you. Uh, find your local maximum on the field <laughs> dimension of your life. I think that's that's pretty cool. And by the way, Elon, if you're watching, Ken is ready to be your mentee. <laughs> I don't know. He might be too extreme for me, honestly. So, <laughs> so if you were to mentor someone,、uh, what what's your best advice for them? I think 
My best advice would be to realize that your journey is your own, mm-hmm. right? And you have to figure out what you like and what works for you and what doesn't work for you. Learning data science, learning anything, any domain, it takes experimentation, right? And you have to be willing to, to try new things. You have to be conscious enough to evaluate if they work for you or they don't work for mm-hmm. you. And that's where a lot of people get stuck. They just want someone to give them an answer. Yeah. But I can't give anyone an answer unless I was them, right? Or unless I knew all of their experiences, mm-hmm. unless I really had a great understanding of their aspirations and, and a lot of things about their life and their personal situation. Like take going back to get a master's in data science, right? I get asked, hey, should I go back? And I'm like, can you afford it? Can, you know, can you learn these things on your own? Would you have to travel? You know, what programs could you get into? There's so mm-hmm. many questions that stem from that individual question that I don't think I could do it justice to, to answer someone and themselves. And I also don't think it's necessarily worth my time to, to go down that rabbit hole when someone could learn a lot about themselves during that process that would help them more in the future. So I've kind of shied away from giving individual individual mentorship. Yeah. I would hope that I provide mentorship through my videos at scale Mm -hmm. because my, you know, my goal is not to help someone just like land a job or to do something concrete. My goal is to help them understand themselves well enough and and this domain well enough to be able to create whatever opportunities they want, not Mm -hmm. necessarily just a job or, or just something very specific. Yeah. And before we wrap up, what do you think about the future of data science? I think it's going in a really positive way. So I did a video about why data engineering is so hot right now. Mm. And a lot of people are worried, like, is data engineering the next big thing? Yeah. Is data science over and all this stuff? And I'm like, no, these companies are hiring, hiring data engineers. Yeah. They're trying to build out their data infrastructure. And if they're trying to do that, that means that I believe there's going to be another heyday for data scientists because you're going to have so many more organizations that have more mature data pipelines in the future. And this was a prerequisite thing that should have happened before, but a lot of companies got wrapped up in the idea that data science is so sexy, we need to hire these data scientists when they weren't necessarily data mature enough to handle these data scientists and the data scientists just got really bored and annoyed and left. And so I think that that movement is something that's going to propel data science, machine learning, and this evolution even further. I also think that we're going to start to run into an area where AI is a little bit more dangerous and we're going to have to figure out how to regulate it more effectively. Yeah, That to me is something that's very scary because there is no way that regulation can keep up with the pace of technology. Right. So I, you know, I, I, taught a course at DePaul, a grad student course about designing ethical AI systems. And I think that that's up to significantly more than data scientists. It's up to designers, it's up to business people to be thinking about and evaluating these algorithms because private companies, organizations are gonna be able to regulate these things, their own models, significantly quicker than any governing body would. Right. So I think that that's something that people really need to pay more attention to or people should pay attention to uh, because to me, that's a that's a looming, I wouldn't say threat, but it's it's something that does give me pause. Yeah, um, I agree. I think when you think about uh, using an app, uh, maybe you don't see it as AI, but there's a lot of recommendation or those type of algorithms make you kind of not like addicted to, but sort of uh, scrolling or uh, viewing their content. 
So I think it's very hard for us to say, oh, I, as a person, I just, uh, you know, have some self-control. There's a, a, for humans, there's a lot of vulnerability um, in ourselves. And I like that you mentioned it's not just data scientist's job or regulator's job. It's uh, what do the business leaders think? And also, uh, at the end of the day, it's in the design. When you're designing that tool, so when you build the algorithm, you, you put it in front of the customer, what are you optimizing for? Um, what is the impact you have on people? Uh, I think for data scientists, if you're working on those applications, make yourself a user, a customer, to see how would you like to interact with it and to have more empathy for the users. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting being a data scientist and understanding loosely, for example, how the YouTube algorithm works mm. or the TikTok algorithm works. And you think about what they optimize for. They optimize for people to watch more videos and stay on the platform longer. Yeah. And that sort of goes directly against the benefit of the user, right? Maybe that person is getting a little bit more information. Maybe they're getting slightly smarter. Mm. But the drawback is they're spending so much time on a single social platform. Yeah. And you know, that is an ethical question. Like, what are you robbing them of with that time? Like, what could they be doing? And there's other negative externalities associated with being on a phone all the time. Maybe like, yeah. it's as simple as your vision is going to go mm. worse sooner. And with, for example, kids that are, are essentially born with a phone in their hand now, yeah. what are the long-term impacts of that much technology? Also that much structured, like dopamine to your brain. I mean, all of these things were designed to give you these little dopamine spikes, yeah. right? They're designed to get you addicted. It's like legal drugs. Mm -hmm. to it. And some would argue that drugs are as addictive as almost any other, I mean, not drugs, uh, social media is as addictive as almost any other substance, yeah. right? And so thinking about that in the future, I'm interested to see what kids who are being born now, how they, what their relationship to technology is, right? right? And I, you know, man, I don't have kids. I'm not planning on having kids anytime soon. But when I do have kids, that's something I want to think about is yeah. like, what, what impact is, are the things that I'm creating technically or like my role is creating, having on them. And, and, and that's a serious thought. I might be in a cabin in the woods yeah. if, if, if it gets too crazy. Mm -hmm. When your kids are digital phones, you realize they're just watching your videos. <laughs> oh, that, well, that's the thing is that I'm also like a little bit part of the problem, right? Yeah. Where I'm creating on one of these platforms. <laughs> But, you know, to me, I, I've differentiated that I can either create value on these platforms yeah. and make make content that I believe if they're going to be stuck here is helping enrich their life, helping yeah. them create a future that they would want. But it is still part of that that broader system. And that is something that I legitimately ethically wrestle with uh, I wouldn't say like all the time, but at yeah. least a little bit. Mm, interesting. Yeah, let's see um, how it will turn out. But uh, I think I, in general, have a positive view on that. There's going to be some maybe accident or things we don't want to see. But I believe now when people have more awareness, uh, you know, from data scientists like us, I think um, the AI, I hope there will be a better design when we implement AI algorithms. Uh, my more like humane AI technologies. Yeah, well, I, I do think that one of the best ways to regulate AI is with AI. Mm. And we just haven't advanced that far in that yet. I mean, you look at fake news and those types of things, especially news coming from, you know, manufactured news coming from Europe and Asia. 
there's a lot of problems with that. And I think that that's made a lot of rifts in our society in general. Mm -hmm. And I would hope that technology gets better to prevent those types of things, but it's a cat and mouse game where like the generative technology, like GPT-3 is so much further ahead yeah. than the anti-GPT-3 tech, technology, mm -hmm. which I don't know. It's like, it's like a very cool problem, but also a little bit of a scary problem. Yeah. Um, I like that fighting AI with AI. There's a Chinese idiom, I think called uh, um, re remove the poison with poison, something like that. <laughs> So um, are there something that you used to believe you had a conviction, but you don't believe in anymore? Um, yeah. So when I was starting out with data science, I used to believe that there was a correct path in, mm. right? I thought that you would do a master's degree or you'd come from a software engineering background and, and that was the, the way to plot into the field. It was the path. After I've interviewed over 80 data scientists on my podcast, I think there's two of them that have come from like what I believe to be a more traditional background. Yeah. And so with data, I've completely disproved that. And I'm really happy I did. That means that the field, at least in my mind, is accessible to everyone. You can have a, you can come from studying psychology, which, you know, one of your Amazon peers who I interviewed came from that background. You don't need, uh, I actually interviewed someone who doesn't have uh, any college degree recently yeah. who broke into the field. There's so many ways in, and there's also a tremendous value in uniqueness mm. over having the same skill set as, as everyone yeah. else, right? You know, if everyone is the same, if you're looking at technical skills as, as a binary variable, if everyone's a one, how do you differentiate them? You have to differentiate them, people with, something else right yeah and that's something else is what i believe really helps people get jobs mm -hmm. yeah thanks for sharing that and what is something in your life or career you're excited about right now well i have a, a really cool project coming out in the middle i think early next month mm -hmm. i can't talk about it yet but okay. it's a little teaser for that so early february yeah look out for something it's unlike anything anyone's done before mm -hmm. I'm also just really excited about the the type of content that I'm creating. So a lot of the videos I've made in the past, it's intro introductory level data stuff and that's totally fine. Mm -hmm. But I'm kind of reaching the point where it's like, how much more of that can I make? I've kind of said everything that, that I have to say. And so more recently, I've been trying to do a lot more storytelling, mm -hmm. telling unique use cases with where people are using data science in, in cool ways or or maybe they had a data science project go wrong and what could happen. Mm. So for example, I, I recently did one where I profiled what happened with Zillow, how they're blaming their model yeah, for losing them that. millions and millions mm -hmm. of dollars. It's great. And uh, I like that storytelling aspect. It lets me use some different style uh, camera editing and, and I have to do a little more research, but mm -hmm. it's so cool to dive into these problems. Yeah. So I'm hoping to do more content like that. And I also think that that'll resonate more with more established data scientists mm -hmm. or people who have been in the in the career for a while. So I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty amped about that and also the podcast. So I'd love to have you on at some point in time also. Yeah, sure. It's it's been it's been really cool to just talk with someone new every day and well not every day, every week and and just learn their story. Mm -hmm. There's so many cool stories of just people in the domain. Like yeah. for example, I had someone who they were in a cult for a couple of years before they moved into data science and, and I mean it's wild stuff. Like, like I was living in a in a tent all of college and mm -hmm. and you know founded an AI startup, right? It, every person has a really unique story. Yeah. And it, it, that's also a just a very 
cool thing about the field and a cool thing about humans in general. Like yeah. We all have our little quirks that make us interesting. Yeah. And for folks who want to follow your contents or participate in 66 Stakes of Data, where can I find you? Yeah, so the best place to find me is going to be on YouTube. So just Ken G is my name. I think it'll be in, in the title. Yeah. But the podcast, if you're interested in that, is Ken's Nearest Neighbors. It's also on YouTube and all the main platforms. And then I'm available on LinkedIn. I don't really respond to LinkedIn messages, though, mm-hmm. because of volume issues. But I do still respond to every single YouTube comment. So it might take a week, but I will respond wow. if it is like a reasonable comment and not mm-hmm. just saying I look like a, an elf or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, 66 Days of Data, uh, I have a video on that on my YouTube channel, and that has a link to the Discord server. Yeah. Great. Um, thank you so much for coming to the show. I really enjoyed the conversation and I look forward to watching more YouTube videos. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun.